Welcome to Emmanuel. Uh, my name's Andy, and over the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking as a church at this series about hearing God. And today is the last one in that series, and we're talking about hearing God for the world, hearing God for mission, hearing God so that we can take the gospel to people who might be different to us or live in a different place to us, hearing God for the world. And um, I've got a really good friend who several years ago moved to a Middle Eastern city and learned Arabic. And part of what he does is he records stories about Jesus, stories from the Bible in Arabic dialects, and then drops them through Facebook into different closed countries uh, just to see what happens, just sowing the seed of the gospel into different places. And I was with him last week in the Middle East, and um, he told me a few stories about what God was doing. And one of these stories really caught my attention. It was quite beautiful. And he said they'd found out that a 14-year-old illiterate girl, young woman, had heard some of these stories about Jesus and had decided to put her faith in Jesus to become a believer in him. She, doesn't, she can't read. Uh, she doesn't have access to the gospel in any other way in her country. And so she's heard these stories and put her faith in Jesus. And she was so excited that she started sharing these stories with some other women in her town, uh, many of whom were ISIS widows. So ISIS had been through that region some years ago. Many people had died, and these women were widowed uh, through that experience. And many of these ISIS widows in that area have started gathering to listen to these stories to pray to Jesus. So it's like the beginning of a church. And um, they, were, they were becoming so many people that they couldn't meet in, in the apartment anymore because the neighbors were noticing and they were starting to get some flack. And in their town, there was a warehouse that was empty. And this girl had this idea, this 14-year-old girl, she's like, we should start meeting in this warehouse. And so they approached the owner of the warehouse, and he says, uh, obviously, no, I don't want people meeting here to talk about Jesus. That's going to bring like bad vibes to my warehouse and could untract attract unnecessary attention. So he said no. But as they talked to him, they realized that the owner of the warehouse had a terribly advanced cancer. And so this girl said, well, I've read a story about Jesus who heals people, and we see you're really unwell. Can we pray for you? So they pray for the owner of this warehouse, and he's miraculously healed. And so he says, okay, I guess you can meet in my warehouse then. <laughs> and um, and so now these, this group of ladies are meeting in this warehouse and growing. This is, like, this is like a now story. This is happening at the moment in a closed country. And it's quite extraordinary. And, and, but it's, it's, it's a movement that's entirely made up of women. And they saw their first guy come to faith recently. And then the next day, that guy lost his life because of his faith. He was martyred the next day. And so this is, this is just one little snippet of some things that the Lord is doing in closed countries in the world. So this is a movement of women led by this 14-year-old illiterate girl. So don't tell me that God can't use you. Okay, and, and uh, today we're going to be in a story in uh, Acts chapter 16. It's a very well-known story. It's the story of when the gospel comes to a city called Philippi. And we're, just, we're going to look at this story. We're going to go verse by verse. And as we go, we're going to draw out some things to think about in terms of how do we hear God? In this story, how are they hearing God for mission? What are the ways that God is speaking to them? And we're going to see 10 things from this story, okay? Nice, neat number. 10 things from this story about hearing God. I know that if you're from the West, you like a list of things that you can write down. One, two, three, ten. So that's for you. Uh, if you're from Africa or from further east in the world, actually, you'll enjoy and probably just learn from the story, and you don't need to take any notes. But either way, um, it's going to be good looking at God's word together. So we're going we're to pray. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16, starting from verse 6. We're going to go verse by verse, 
and we're going to look at 10 things about God speaking. Is that okay? Right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your presence here today with us. Thank you for your word, which is alive and mighty. Lord, we're not just going to talk about hearing you. We are going to hear you. We're not just going to talk about mission. We're going to be those that are caught up in mission. So come, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. But even more than that, be the one who speaks. Be the one who inspires. Let all of us today that sit under your word, preacher and people alike, let us be impacted, changed, shaped as you speak to us through your living word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Acts chapter 16 and verse 6. And the first thing about hearing God that we're going to see in this story is that this group of people, they hear God when they're already moving. They're already moving, and that's how they hear God. So verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. So Paul and his group of friends, they're already missional. They're already moving. They're already moving around uh, sharing the gospel with people, praying for the sick, starting churches in new places. And um, it, it's important to understand that often, if we want God to speak to us, the thing to do isn't to sit still and wait for God to speak to us. It's to start moving, and then God can start directing. And he, he may start by saying no. The first two directive words in this passage are no. So he says, don't go into that area, and don't go into that area. And no is a great way of God guiding you. Because the world is huge. There's so much need. There are so many things we could be doing. And it's great to actually start eliminating some possibilities. You know, so, okay, I'm not called to that, and I'm not called to that. It's going to help me refine my focus, actually, and go, okay, so maybe I could be called in this direction. And, and so know if that's what God is saying to you. Maybe you came to church today, God, I really want to hear from you, and what you're hearing is no. That's actually a great way of God guiding you, because... He's just cutting some things out and, and helping to refine your focus. And that's what happens here. So they can't go that way. They can't go that way. So they end up going to Troas, which is this little port city. So they're stuck in this port city. They can't go any further westwards. And then they're going to have a moment hearing God together. And so uh, point number two, the second thing about hearing God here is they hear God together as a group of guys. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul... In the night, a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. It's really interesting. Paul sees the vision, and it's a really emotive vision. This guy is urging them, begging them, please come and help us. You know, often when God speaks to us about the lost, or about ministering to the poor, about issues of social justice or the gospel. Often there's an emotional content. You know, you might be in a meeting like this and someone prays for you and the Holy Spirit comes. There can often be an emotion associated with that. But actually then they wake up in the morning and in the cold light of day, they weigh it together as a group of friends and they say, what is God saying? It's, it should be quite obvious what God's saying. They should go to Macedonia. But even so, they want to take time to weigh it together as a community. And, and because as a group of, the, here it's four guys. So you've got Paul, you've got Silas, you've got Luke, and you've got Timothy. So when it says we, you've got those four guys in the mix. 
And actually, it's quite a diverse mix of people. They're all from different places. So Paul is from Tarsus. Silas is from Jerusalem, the furthest east. Timothy is from a small place in the middle of Turkey. And Luke is a Greek doctor. And not only are they from four different places, they've actually got four different kind of sets of gifts or skills. So Paul is called an apostle in the Bible. Silas is called a prophet. Timothy is this kind of emerging pastor. He's kind of like the apprentice pastor on the team, the young guy. Probably has to do all the menial tasks, carry all the bags, you know, train him to serve. That's what you should do with pastors. And um, Luke is a Greek doctor. He's the, he's the like team physio. He's there to make sure that everybody's okay. Um, and he loves writing stuff down as well. He's kind of keeping the journal and he's going to end up writing it into acts. And so you've got really diverse team from different places and also different skills and gifts. And they're going to end up, when they go to Philippi, they're going to reach a really diverse group of people in Philippi. And it's interesting, actually, if you plant a diverse seed, you get diverse fruit. If you, if you start off with this kind of intentional diversity, then you're going to end up producing something that reaches lots of different kinds of people. And actually, diversity is closely linked to missional effectiveness, often. So all the benefits of being part of a diverse church, overcoming prejudice, realizing my way of doing things is not the only way or even the best way, accepting other people in their difference, basically getting over yourself is really good in terms of then reaching people that are different to you. If you've only ever been in a community of people that are the same as you, you're going to really struggle to reach people that are different to you. And so there's a lot of benefit in being a diverse community. And so Paul sees this vision, but the group weigh it together. Together they hear God and together they decide, let's get in a boat and cross over to Macedonia. And they're going to go now into an unreached region, a place where the gospel has never come before. In fact, this is the time when the gospel first moves from its Asian home into Europe. So we, in Europe, we benefit from this moment. In those days, they didn't see it in terms of continents, but in terms of our geography today, we'd say, wow, this is the gospel coming into our world. We're going to receive the gospel now. It's exciting for us. And so off they go. Now, number three is hearing God and getting in the boat. So hearing is not just hearing, it's doing something. There's a moment to get in the boat, and that's what's going to happen right now. So verse 11, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city for some days. In the ancient world, people hated traveling. No one would choose to travel to go on holiday. It wasn't a thing. And people hated going by boat because the boats were tiny and the sea is big and scary. And for them, the sea was this place of chaos and danger and anything could happen. And lots of boats sank and lots of people died. And so every time you got in a boat, it's a risk. And this moment of saying, actually, we set sail, we could just read that. Oh, yeah, we set sail. But it's a big thing for them. It's like, there's the boat. Are we going to get in? Luke, are you going to get in? You're the doctor. We need you. Please get in. You know, here we go. Let's step into the boat. And off we go. It's the risk moment. We've heard God, but now there's the time to actually get in the boat and take the step. And for some of you here today, actually, maybe that's the thing that God is saying to you. You've been hearing from me. You've been receiving from me. But now it's time to get in the boat. For some people here today, you know what God's called you to do. You know what you're supposed to be doing. But there's a, there's a courage moment. There's a faith moment that comes and says, OK, I know the boat is small and the sea is big, but God is with me and I'm going to step in now. And let's see what happens. Okay, and so hearing God and getting in the boat 
is a massive part because hearing God produces a response in us and produces courage in us. Now, I was talking to someone the other day uh, from the, the, great subcontinent of, the great continent of Africa, and he said, we're so grateful for 200 years ago, all the missionaries that came from England here. He said, did you know most missionaries that came to my country, their average life expectancy was six weeks? And he said, we're so grateful that hundreds and hundreds of people came, knowing that they were going to catch some tropical illness and die very quickly. Uh, just to share the, a little bit of the gospel with us. We're so grateful. And now, obviously, uh, so many people from Africa come to the UK with the gospel and revitalize the church here. And so there's this wonderful giving and receiving that happens in the body of Christ. But there's always a risk. There's always a danger. There's always a scary part of getting in the boat. Number four, what we're going to see now is that hearing God, the, some of the decisions that they make in seeing this vision are actually because they're part of a bigger apostolic story. So actually there's something about, you're not just hearing God for yourself, you're hearing God as part of the kind of bigger narrative that we have together as the New Frontiers family of churches, together as uh, people in our generation, at our time, the things that God is doing. So there's some strategic decisions that they make because of their wider narrative uh, in terms of their story and acts. So when they see this thing come and help us, there's lots of decisions they could have made. They could have said, okay, we'll do that through economic development, or we'll do that through starting a farm, or we'll do that through starting a factory and giving clothes to the poor. And all of those things are amazing kingdom activities. But actually, they say, we concluded God was calling us to preach the gospel to them. So they say, come and help us. The way to do that is to preach the gospel. That's what we're going to do. And then what they do is they go to the leading city of Macedonia, which is Philippi. So it says, we, we decided, God called us to Macedonia. Where are we going to go? We decided to go to the leading city there. And then what they're going to do is they're going to preach the gospel and they're going to gather communities of believers. They're going to plant churches. So these three things, we heard God speak, but we interpret it through the lens of going, we're going to preach the gospel. That's the best way of helping people. We're going to go to the leading city because that's a strategic move. And we're going to see churches planted. We're going to plant churches there. All of that is part of our story as a family of churches, part of the way that you as Emmanuel have worked in some of the leading cities of Europe. And it's, it's actually really important to understand that. So often going to big cities, can, it, it could be easier for a foreigner, for, for an outsider to turn up in a big city because they're often cosmopolitan. You can fit in uh, a little bit more easily. But also because people from the whole region can come there. So... Uh, a friend of ours started a church in a city called Izmir in Turkey. And one of the people that came to faith in that city uh, was a guy from a closed Central Asian country. So completely closed, no access to the gospel center. He came to study medicine. And while he was in Izmir as a student, he encountered the gospel. He came to faith. And as he finished his degree, he was discipled in the church. When he finished his degree, he went back to his closed Central Asian country and has led many of his family to Christ and has started many small house churches. He actually he run, He's a doctor and he runs several businesses. And he said the government keep closing his businesses down so he has to keep starting new ones. Amazing. And he's starting churches all over his country. And you think that's because we couldn't get to that country, but we could get to this city. So we planted there and then people from the surrounding area that come. Do you understand? And so often it's so uh, logical, strategic, and often... It seems that Paul and the apostles in the New Testament, that's what they were doing. And we see this here in the, 
Philippi story. That doesn't discount small places. Uh, Jesus was always in villages. God loves small places. But sometimes it seems the strategic thing to do when going to a new country is to start in some of the key cities. And it's important to say that because many, many, many in the room will have a sense of calling from God for themselves. I feel my kind of personal destiny, and I feel this is what God said to me. And that's super important. But there's a weighing it with trusted friends, as we saw, the kind of hearing God together. But then there's also going, and how can my personal story fit into the bigger story that we're part of as a family of churches around the world? You know, this kind of apostolic narrative of going, we're, we're reaching new places, we're starting churches, we're preaching the gospel. Your personal story could be part of that bigger story. So it's not to, it's not to discount that, it's to try and bring focus and go, how can what God has called you to do be part of the great big story that we have the privilege of being part of as a family of churches. Amen? Number five, hearing God through listening and learning in a new place. So reading from verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who'd come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So normally, Paul goes to the synagogue first. He's got his kind of normal strategy. He goes to the synagogue first. There's a problem. In Philippi, there's no synagogue. So there's a new place. He needs a new strategy. And it seems really simple, but actually it's a really important thing that churches in different places will look different. And reaching different kind of people with the gospel is always slightly different. And so it's not just a monologue. I'm turning up and I'm going to just preach at you. I've got all the answers. People are going to go, hang on, we didn't even ask you a question yet. How can you turn up with all the answers? You don't know us. There's no conversation. And, and so this whole thing of turning up, asking questions, seeking to understand where we live, seeking to get to know our city, our culture, people, learn their language. That whole piece of listening is actually a really important prelude to then speaking. Mission is a dialogue, not a monologue. Everybody hates it when people just preach at them. You're probably already bored. I'm just preaching at you. But mission is a dialogue. And Jesus in John, we see this. He models it so well. He talks to lots of different people in John, and he speaks with each one slightly differently. Speaks with the Samaritan woman differently, speaks with Nicodemus differently, because actually different people need to encounter the gospel in different ways, hear different things. And what we see in the, in the ministry of Paul and his team is they'll often do that. They'll go to a new place and go, who can we reach here? Where is the openness? Whose heart is open? How do we move towards them? And in this case, they find Lydia and her community, and it says the Lord opens her heart. And Lydia and her whole household came to faith. Now, Lydia was a wealthy person. In the ancient world, only 6% of people owned houses, and she owns a house, and she's got a lot of people working for her, and she deals in purple cloth, which there was an imperial monopoly on that, only kind of people associated with the emperor's household. So she was, she was probably very high up in society, very wealthy person, and first person that comes to faith for them is this businesswoman, kind of independent, independent powerful businesswoman. And she's, she's a foreigner. She's not from Philippi. She's from where Paul's from. 
Theatra is very close to Tarsus. So she's from the same part of the world as Paul. So the first person he reaches is someone who's a little bit like him. It's interesting, isn't it? But what happens is they're not going to stay there. They're not going to go. They could go, oh, we've planted a church now. We've reached some people that are foreigners. You know, we've, got, we've started an international church with the international business community here. We haven't touched any local people, but we've done something. But they say, no, no, that's a great start. God opened our heart, but we're not stopping there because we have a vision of reaching the man from Macedonia. Lydia is not the man and she's not from Macedonia. So she's an amazing beginning and she's going to pour lots of her wealth into Paul's mission over the years. So in the future, when he writes the letter to the Philippians and he thanks them for all their generous financial support, they seem to always be generous to him. It's probably Lydia. She's probably funding him out of her business. And so for years, she plays this important role in the kingdom of God, earning money and then sowing it. And if you're a business person here today, do that. Earn lots and give lots. Amen? And so what happens here is that they hear God through listening and learning by doing their context analysis, their research, understanding the place, seeing where the openness is first, starting there, but they don't stop there because they've also got this overriding thing. God said, reach the man from Macedonia. We're not going to stop until we get to him, the, the local guy, the kind of salt of the earth uh, in the marketplace, that, that local guy, we need to get to him. So number six. Hearing God through being moved by injustice. And so they've, they've reached Lydia. They're reaching some people in her household. They've baptized the whole community there. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a, a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed us. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, that's kind of an English under-translation. Um, it's a bit more kind of disturbed, moved. There's, there's more compassion in it and there's more anger in it. He's really moved by this. Yeah, he's disturbed. It's uncomfortable. So he turned and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And then the crowd got involved and joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them, stripped them naked, and gave orders to beat them with rods. Wow. So Paul, is, he's disturbed. He's made uncomfortable by this situation. There's something very uncomfortable about this situation. This girl is, is kind of empowered by a demon to tell fortunes. And as a result, some people have seen it as a chance for profit. So she's got owners. What a horrible word for people to own another person. She's got owners. She's a slave. And you get this, this coalescing of some horrible things, a kind of demonic power and a girl who's in slavery and owners who all they care about is profit and money. And it's this horrible picture of mess. And it really disturbs Paul. And we have to let injustice disturb us. We have to let it get inside us, it make you angry, make you uncomfortable. And actually, that's how God speaks sometimes. 
This is a way of God speaking by really unsettling you about a situation. And maybe you're here and actually that's your thing. There's something in the world that just makes you really uncomfortable, really angry, really frustrated. You must let that do what it does inside you. It's not okay. It's not okay. And so what happens is we get into the city, but we also let the city get into us. If you want to smell the rose, you often get pricked by the thorn. And there's, there's something about really getting into a place that impacts you, and there's pain in it, but that's part of identifying with that place. It's part of reaching that place with the gospel. And Paul speaks up. Silence is a great strategy for maintaining the status quo. Yeah, everything will just stay the same because you don't speak up. But speaking up is a prophetic action that begins to change things. It's a protest against the way things have always been. It's saying, no, that's not okay. Things need to be different here. And some of you, you need to start speaking up about some things. You've been angry. You've been uncomfortable. You're not sure. And God's saying, it's time to speak up. Break the silence. Silence can be a heavy thing that just sits on people or communities. And it takes courage sometimes to break it and raise your voice and say something. And then in context, the, the response of the crowd, the slave owners and the crowd is demonic. It's really interesting, actually. The way Luke phrases it is he says, they drove out the spirit from the girl and the opportunity for profit was driven out from the men. So it's like a double exorcism. She's exercised of the demonic power and they're exercised of their ability to make money. And, and as a result, they, they start to attack the apostles, they stir up the crowd, they use racist language, ah, these men are Jews, because so often, you know, kind of stirring up public sympathy, hatred of the outsider, that's a good thing to get the crowd mobilized, everyone will get on the back of that. And they've cast the devil out, so now the devil wants to cast them out. When they were reaching Lydia and the nice foreign business community, they didn't upset the devil at all. But now that they've really started touching the kind of the belly of this town, the, the, the down and dirty, the real issues of the town, that's when they start getting opposition and pushback. That's when the devil kind of starts getting uncomfortable. Does that make sense? And so those who go church planting or those who take the gospel to others will encounter both incredible hospitality and incredible anti-hospitality. Okay, I invented that word, but... It, you understand what it means. Lydia opens her heart, opens her home, brings them in. Incredible hospitality. And you'll encounter that. But then these people, they get angry. They shut them out. They strip them naked. They beat them with rods. They humiliate them. And it's this rejection. Of, and Jesus was very clear. Some will accept the message. Some will reject the message. You will encounter in people of peace, hearts that are open, incredible hospitality. You'll also encounter opposition, persecution, resistance, incredible anti-hospitality. In the Bible, we always see both of these in play, and we do in this story here. Number seven, hearing God, therefore, always leads to opposition. You just need to know that. We need to keep saying that to people. Hearing God and obeying is difficult, and it's full of pain. And we're going to keep on banging that drum. You know it's true. You've encountered it yourselves. Verse 23, when they'd inflicted many blows upon them, stripped naked, public, beaten with rods, many blows. They threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks, which sounds really uncomfortable and painful and difficult. And so often in kind of 
let's go commissioning moments in the church. People will go to something like Isaiah chapter 6, where God says, who will go for us? And we say, here I am, send me. And it's an amazing opportunity to respond to a, a kind of missionary appeal. Come on, let's go. Who's going to go? But no one ever reads the second half of that chapter. The second half of that chapter, God says, great, Isaiah. And it's going to be really difficult. And no one's going to listen to you. And you're going to spend seven decades prophesying under evil kings. And then at the end of Isaiah's story, he ends up being sawn in half under the reign of King Manasseh. Isaiah has a terribly painful and difficult ministry. But we often go to chapter 6. It's like, who will go? Here I am, send me. Okay, great. It's going to be difficult though. And so we, as part of my job, I'm always saying to people, who will go? Let's, there's massive unreached cities in the world. They need to hear the gospel. Someone's got to go and learn language and live in places and start churches. We need to be doing that more. But it is going to be difficult. And people will beat you and put you in prison. Is that okay? And then number eight, when they're in prison, hearing God gives discernment under pressure. When you're in a difficult time, it's very difficult to hear God speak. So what do you do? You, you lean back on what God said to you at the beginning. You know, it's difficult to turn around in a tunnel. If you're uh, on a canal boat going through a tunnel and it gets dark and suddenly you get scared, you can't turn your canal boat around and come out again back the way you came. You just have to press through the darkness and out the other side, thinking, no, God told me to go this way. I can't feel God. I can't hear God right now, but I'm, I'm going to keep going. Don't try and turn around in a tunnel. You'll just get disorientated and lost. And that's what happens to Paul and Silas here. They're in prison, so they're going to lean back on what God said to them originally. You're looking for the man from Macedonia. Have you got him yet? No, you've got Lydia. You've got the slave girl. Neither of them are the man from Macedonia. So stay in the game until you get to what I told you to do. Don't give up. And so, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I love that. I don't know if Paul could sing nicely, or if he had this kind of terrible, gravelly, masculine voice. I don't know, but singing worship songs in church is something. Singing worship songs in prison at midnight is something else, hey? And that's where the power is. So they're singing worship songs in prison, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. It's a miracle. It's a supernatural moment. That's not a coincidence. It's not they're singing. I know it's an earthquake zone, that part of the world, but it's not they were singing and then suddenly, randomly, there's an earthquake. God went bang. And some people, they want the earthquakes, but they don't want the prisons, understandably. But in the stories from the parts of the world where there are prison experiences, there's often the times when you get earthquake experiences. There are some places where the good stories get gooder and the bad stories get badder. And often it's amongst the unreached, which is what they're doing here. The people that have never heard, the people who have never had any opportunity to encounter the gospel. And so the jailer, verse 27, woke and saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he's failed in his duty. There's a shame moment for him. Supposing that the prisoner had escaped, but Paul cried with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer, he called for lights, didn't believe it. Why would you be here? The gates are open. What are you still doing here? 
called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. And then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. It's amazing. In, in, earlier in Acts, in Acts chapter 12, you have exactly the same situation. Peter's in prison. There's an earthquake. The chains fall off, the gates open, and Peter goes, I'm off then. Here, exactly the same thing happens. There's an earthquake, the chains fall off, the gates open, but Paul and Silas don't go out. Sometimes the, gate, so the doors open for you to go out, but sometimes the doors open for someone else to come in. And here, someone comes in. Who is it? It's the man from Macedonia. It's the, it's the demographic that God told them to reach. It's that kind of guy that they've been staying in play for, the, the local guy who runs the prison. And he walks in. And the reason that they haven't left, I think, is because they're still sensing we're not done here yet. We didn't leave after we reached Lydia and her community. We didn't leave when the prison doors flew open because God told us to reach the man from Macedonia. So we're staying in play. And now in he walks and says, brothers, what, what can I do to be saved? His heart's open. He's ready. It's his moment. And they rescue him from his suicidal despair. And then there's this beautiful moment where he takes them to his house, which was probably joined to the prison with his whole household family there. And they share the gospel and he washes their wounds and they wash him in the waters of baptism. You know, Chrysostom, uh, St. John Chrysostom, he said it like this. He washes their wounds and then they wash his sins. There's this wonderful sharing. We'll wash you, you wash us. And actually, they feed him with the gospel. He feeds them at his table. They minister to him in his prison of despair and suicide. He ministers to them in their real prison. And so there's this give and take, this mutuality that's so beautiful and so important for us. Because so often, as Westerners or wealthy people, educated people, privileged people, sometimes we can turn up and go, we've got all the resources, all the answers, all the stuff. We're the giver, you're the receiver. That's not mission. That's colonialism. That's patronizing people. Mission, there's always a giving and receiving. There's a vulnerability in Paul and Silas. They need something as well as giving something. He opens his home. They open the Bible, yeah? And it's so important. Otherwise, the givers get prouder and the receivers get more and more humiliated. And we must break this cycle of pride in the giver and humiliation in the receiver. Everyone's got something to give and everyone's got something to receive. And this man and his whole household come to faith. And so often in the part of the world where I work, we see stories of whole communities of people coming to faith together. One time I was in a room like this and there's a small, quiet Iranian lady there and someone said, oh yeah, she's seen many people from her family come to faith. Very diminutive uh, woman. So I went and spoke to her. I said, sister, I've heard some of your story. What happened? She said, oh yeah, I've seen lots of people from my family come to faith, about 200 people. Firstly, that's like, that's a big family. <laughs> Secondly, that's like, wow, God bless you. That's amazing. But so often uh, in the West, we're quite individualistic and self-resourcing you know you can come to faith on your own and sustain yourself but in many parts of the world you need a community around you 
And uh, actually, the West is quite extraordinarily individualistic in that sense. And so, so Lydia's whole household came to faith and were baptized. The jailer's whole household came to faith and were baptized. That's exciting. You know, behind every person that walks into your church meeting, there's a potential household. There's a potential people movement. Don't, don't just go, how do we get that one person? Go, how do we reach their family, their community? Don't take the yeast out of the dough and stick it in a little yeast box. The yeast is supposed to stay in the dough so that you can affect their whole community through that person. You understand? And then number nine, uh, we're nearly there. Hearing God to do it all over again. So what happens is they come out of prison and the authorities say to them, verse 39, they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Please leave the city. You guys are a nuisance. Verse 40, so they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. And when they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So they go, they encourage the church at Lydia's house. And then they leave. And what do they do? They go to the next city and they do it all again. They go to the next city and they do it all again. And so Hudson Taylor said that foreign missionaries are like scaffolding. You know, you use them to put up the building, which is the local church with local people, local language. And then we dismantle the scaffolding and we use it again somewhere else. And it's a fantastic picture, actually. And for some of you here, that may be the thing. You may have done what God asked you to do. You know, they've reached the man from Macedonia now, finally. And so sometimes we overstay. It's like, God, God told me to do this, so I'm going to stay here. It's like, no, no, but you've done it. So how can you be redeployed now? How, how can you move on and be somewhere else and go again? And that's what they do here. And then finally, number 10, all of this has come... From the Bible, I'm telling you a story from Scripture, and it's got a power of its own. And so number 10 is we hear God in the Bible, actually, in the stories of Scripture. These aren't just principles. They're not just ideas. This is the Word of God. And I'm confident that God is speaking to many here today in many different ways about mission, about the world. In conclusion, let's understand that in all of this, we see something of Jesus Christ. This story is Jesus' story, as is so much of the Bible. Jesus got in the, the frail, vulnerable boat of humanity and left his glorious shore of heaven and, and decided to take the risk and the vulnerability of getting in the boat, becoming flesh, being born as a naked, vulnerable baby, coming into our world because of his love to come and reach us. Jesus spoke words of love and hearts open to him like Lydia's heart. Jesus sets captives free. Jesus feels injustice deeply. He's moved by it. Jesus was resisted, attacked, stripped, beaten, humiliated, wrongly imprisoned, and ended up right in the inner prison, if you like, of death. Jesus experienced great hospitality at our hands, but also incredible anti-hospitality. We resisted him. We killed him. And so Jesus finds himself in this prison of death in the tomb, darkness at midnight. And then just like these guys had this miraculous earthquake and the doors were open. So God sent a miraculous earthquake on the Sunday morning and the stone was rolled away. And there's this resurrection moment for Jesus. Jesus had a prison. Jesus had an earthquake. And that's where he found us, actually. We were like the man from Macedonia. Hopeless, suicidal, in mess, in pain. And Jesus, by coming into our prison, found us, washed us in baptism, saved us, 
set us free, us and our whole families. And this picture of him sitting and eating together, it's a picture of friendship. And that's what Jesus said to people. If anyone opens their heart to me, I will come and eat with him. We will eat together. It's a sign of sacred friendship, of family, of community. It's a beautiful thing. And so we must remember, because before we are savers, we are savees. Yeah, before we are changers, we are changees. Before we get to be Paul and Barnabas on a mission with a man from Macedonia, encountering the love and the kindness of Christ. Because he came for us, we go for other people. Because he sought us out, we seek other people out. Because he left his home, we leave our homes. Because he welcomed us, we welcome others. Because he showed unlimited acceptance, we show unlimited acceptance. We're on a mission, friends, because first he was on a mission. He saved us and he calls us into this great purpose of seeking out the lost. Amen. Let's pray together. Yeah, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that right across this room, you're speaking to different people about different things. As we come to your table now, we are going to do it with a response of faith. We're so grateful that you found us in our prison. We're so grateful that you seek us out. Oh, Lord, give us the things that we need, the people around us, the community to weigh words together, the courage, the faith to get into rickety little boats, uh, the guidance to eliminate options so that we can focus in with our short lives and limited resources on what you're calling us to do. Move us about injustice. Help us to break the silence and speak up about the things that matter to you. Help us to hang in there until we reach the people that you've called us to reach. Help us even when we're being resisted, when we're encountering anti-hospitality, when we're being uh, humiliated because of the gospel. Give us great perseverance. Great, make us very resilient, oh God. Come Holy Spirit and build us as your church as we seek to follow you and hear you for the world. In Jesus' name, amen.